Good afternoon, everybody. I thought this would be a good opportunity. Someone remove my stick. You want to see the little white stick over here? Hmm. Here it is. All right. I thought this would be a good opportunity to come up here and speak to you more like in the format of a lecture. Instead of preaching, it will be a little bit different. I won't be looking down as, at notes as much. But I thought it'd be a good opportunity for me to speak to you as your brother to understand that at this church, you're going to hear eschatology a little bit different. So I didn't want to come up here and give you an understanding of just what I believe. There's going to be a difference in beliefs in eschatology at this church. So I did want to come up here and explain to you what those differences are. I know we do have some dispensational premillennial background at this church. However, we have postmillennialists at this church. We have amillennialists at this church. I don't know of any historic premill, but all those would follow along the lines of what Reformed eschatology is. Of course, we would not refuse membership to someone who's dispensational pre-mill. It would have a little bit of a hard time just because when it comes to Reformed theology, there is a difference when it comes to eschatology. So you'll hear me repeat some terms. I'm going to define this. Duo, aeon, eschatos, or eschaton. Two-age eschatology. So there's going to be a variation of that between post-millennial millennial and historic pre-mill. So when you get into a post-millennialist, I'm going to start here, but I'm just kind of giving you a little overview here. A post-millennialist is going to affirm the same thing an amillennialist would, that the church militant is battling it out in this present age, and the church triumphant are the saints in heaven. However, when we see the already and not yet, okay, we'll get to that, and I'll be repeating that again, so be patient with me. But the post-mill would understand that to be the definitive, progressive, and final. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on all the positions. However, I will tell you that historic pre-mill, there were some very early church guys that were historic pre-mill. And it does qualify as a reformed eschatology, and I'll tell you why. Because there's no division of the people of God, okay? There's going to be one people of God in historic pre-mill. You look at Justin Martyr's writings, he did not draw a distinction between the church and Israel. That is a dispensational hermeneutic. So I'm just trying to give a background of this, but I want to start here at creation. So this would be borrowed from Gerhardus Vox, considered concepts from the Pauline eschatology. You can find this on Google. This is where I found this chart. It seemed to be the nicest one to use that I liked. The only thing I didn't like was that there's this big gap here, which is most of the Bible is missing, right? So I'm going to attempt to fill some of that in for you so we can see that this was spoken of back here. So if we start with the fall, okay, and hopefully this won't trigger Pastor Paul, but there's the lapsarian positions, supra, infra, sub, lapsarian. This talks about the fall of man. Okay, I'm a very proud and dogmatic Super lapsarian. However, it is within the scope of Reformed theology. There is a debate 
They're solid brothers who are infralapsarian, sublapsarian, okay, a little bit different. However, I like this quote here. At the fall of Adam, it's not like God reacted to it and said, oh, what do I do now? It was a part of God's plan. And that's what supra tends to emphasize. So it says here, supralapsarianism tells us that God created the world knowing humans would sin in order to send his son, to redeem a people for himself. Saving sinners was not God's afterthought because Adam and Eve took a nosh of fruit. Saving sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ was God's eternal plan even before he created the earth. So within that, you've got some covenants here. And what's interesting, you've got the Noahic covenant, you've got the Abrahamic covenant, you've got the Mosaic covenant, you've got the Davidic covenant, okay? And there's going to be lineage that's associated with these covenants. However, when you look at the two-age model, the two-age model has a distinction amongst, within Reformed eschatology. Now, I'm an amillennialist, so if you talk to most post-mills, they will affirm a two-age eschatology, just not quite the same. They will say that this was the first age, the Jewish aeon, and that the age to come is this. They're going to have a distinction between the new heavens and new earth, where they're going to look at it differently from an amillennialist. Whereas we would say something quite like this. If you look at Matthew 12, 32, you can turn here. I'm going to read a lot of passages, so you can mark a lot of passages, and I want you to just take notes. I'm trying to speak to you freely without giving you just my presuppositions and do like this survey view consistently. Because like I said, there are brothers in this church that hold to different positions, and that's okay. I think the reformers had a great amount of wisdom to allow for disagreement on eschatology. So Matthew 12, 32, it says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So I think this is one of those texts that all of the reformed eschatology holders would agree this is not talking about this age or this age, but the age to come would be eternity, okay? So, here's another passage. In Luke 18, 29 and 30. So he said to them, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. I don't know anyone that would disagree and say they're going to receive eternal life here. <laughs> we receive eternal life there. Now when we believe we have it, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, but we don't actually receive eternal life until our personal, eschat our personal eschatology comes to pass when we die when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to consummate his kingdom. I love this one right here. Colossians 1, oh, excuse me, Galatians 1, 4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our God and Father. So, again, 
Let's not get wrapped up too much into Amel, Postmel. Those are more modern terms. Prior to that, it was just called Chiliaism. Okay, Chilia being 1,000 years. Okay, and that would be the Greek. If you look up any any lexicon, you're going to see 1,000 being Chilia is the Greek word. So Chiliaism, I believe before Edwards would, and a couple of others, it was just the eschatology of the church was pretty monolithic. It was pretty similar with the distinction of historic pre-male. So, Chiliaism also, uh, there was another phrase from the Latin Vulgate, and that was mille ane. And so, mille, millennium being a thousand, ane being years, and that would have come from the Vulgate. So, when it comes to mille ane or Chiliaism, we're talking about the millennium. Now, the Reformed eschatology it's going to take that to be not a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Not a literal chronological 1,000 years. Okay, Now, the historic pre-mill, I believe they do take that as a literal 1,000 years. So when we look at the prophecies that were taking place, we go back to the very beginning. The gospel was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Everyone in this room, I believe, has enough biblical background to understand that when the Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, was a promise of the Messiah to come. So we already see prophecies given in the third chapter of Genesis. But when we move up to Genesis 49, and this, and by the way, this is not, I'm not going to be able to grab everything and compact it in one lecture. So there are going to be some things that I miss here today. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It's meant to give you an overview of Reformed eschatology. So Genesis 49.1, this is a really good one, and you might want to make note of it. Genesis 49.1. And Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. All right. So we'll see who he was speaking of here. And we skip down to verse eight. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's well. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And, to, and unto him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So we see a lot of imagery here. And obviously, it's interesting, even in John MacArthur's commentary, he gets this right. Shiloh would be a cryptogram for the Messiah, for Lord Jesus Christ. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now remember, this is given back in Genesis until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall be obedience to the people. So we see here 
what it would look like when Messiah comes. It even talks about the donkey and uh, the crucifixion, the imagery that it gives of the washing of his garments in wine and the blood of grapes and on his clothes, right? So we see that imagery even back prophetically back in the first book of the Torah that Moses gave us. So as we get into these prophecies, we're going to see, you know, I really used to hear this all the time. The Old Testament saints did not see this time that we're living in. As we read through these passages, we're going to see that's just not the case. There's no way that could have been. Okay. Genesis 12, 3. I'm trying to go through these like the highlight points. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the promise to Abraham's seed, I would say, or the elect was to bless the nations through the gospel. Now, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country. From your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, excuse me, I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see Abraham see the promise here that the elect, that a time would come that those who are outside the borders of Israel would come and be blessed through the preaching of the gospel. Now, a lot of our brothers get this wrong. They think the seed of Abraham is just the Jews. And the danger of that teaching has even popped up today. And we talk about this all the time, that uh, even Reformed theologians and pastors have called it covenant succession. But if we remember in John chapter 8, the Jews, when Jesus said, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. What was, the, what was their response? What's covenant succession? You're going to mention that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to build into that, brother. So if you look in John chapter 8, Jesus said, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So the Jews response in John eight was we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that we'll be made free? So they took it upon themselves to believe that we've already got the lineage. We've already got the genealogy from our temple. Why? Why are we in bondage? So there are modern pastors who teach that it's not a matter of. If, but when God is going to save my children, that's a dangerous way to look at it. And my children are pre-Christian and that covenant succession, which is physical lineage. See, as Christians, in, in somewhat of a sense, maybe not with genealogy, we kind of have the same problem. We, we have physical children, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to translate into the kingdom of God. We need God to save our children. So a covenant succession would be a earthly Lineage, physical earthly lineage that would translate into the covenant. Okay? And we already know as Calvinists that that's just not the case. That yes, you can be faithful to your children. Yes, uh, faithful to the Lord and preach the gospel to your children, disciple your children. And that is a means of grace that God uses. However, God is not bound to your obedience. He's not going to reward you with salvation for being obedient. You need to Keep that in mind because there's been some faithful brothers and sisters throughout the years who God just did not regenerate their children. So when you do what you do, make sure you do it for Jesus. 
because you love him and keep his commandments. And of course we petition God. I think Pastor Paul was talking about that earlier today. Of course we want our children to be saved when he was talking about the Lord's table. But the fulfillment of this scripture, or at least the initial fulfillment of it, will be found in Galatians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 8, and the scripture, this would be Genesis 12, and what he's referencing here, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Sound refutation to pedo-baptism right there. Those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And if you go on to the end of that chapter, it even tells you, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So I left out that middle part, but the promise is to Christ and his seed, God used Abraham to bring about the lineage of the Messiah. But the promise is to Christ and the elect, not to the Jew particularly, but to the believing one. And there's no distinction whether you're male or female, whether you're slave or free, whether you're Jew or Greek, we're all one in Christ. That's the context of Galatians 3, and that gives us an understanding of the Old Testament and it's going to trigger some but the New Testament priority hermeneutic is used to not say that the Old Testament is irrelevant or less of a priority but when it comes to prophecy it, we need it to tell us the typology and the fulfillment because without the New Testament we would not understand the, the fuller meaning of the Old Testament here's some other ones that are really going to get heavy, so you got to pay close attention. Isaiah 9. You can go there. I'll wait for you to get there. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. All right, I love that passage. It gives me goosebumps every time I read it. Why? Because we all were in darkness at one point. Every last one of us. And when we see what the Lord says here, look at the application and the reference to this text when we get to Matthew 4, 12 through 17. And this goes directly to what Pastor Paul was teaching in Hebrews. The New Testament is the best commentary you will ever get on the Old Testament. Okay? Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of death, light has dawned. Notice this next phrase here in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Isaiah, back here, what is Isaiah, 750 B.C.? Saw this time when Christ's earthly ministry as a fulfillment of that. And that those in that Gentile region, calls it even the Galilee of the Gentiles, that these who sat in darkness would have light shone on them. And in that time, especially when you get to Ephesians, when it talks about those who were in the world without God and no hope in the world, you who are far off had now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we see the Old Testament had the New Testament in mind as it was unfolding. We see these prophecies begin to come to fruition. And you know what? Throughout this whole age, they're coming to fruition. Okay? That is reformed eschatology. There is one Messiah. There is one kingdom. There is one coming. There is one judgment at the end. Not multiple judgments. There's one judgment, then we go into eternity. This is one that there's been a lot of confusion on, this next one. A lot of confusion. Isaiah 11, 6 through 10. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. I love those passages. I love those passages. And you know why I love those passages? Because the imagery communicates to us that there was going to come a time when the gospel would penetrate beyond the, you know, the confines of Israel. And it would reach a people... Remember, that word Gentiles can also, from the Greek, the uh, Hebrew word means goyim, can also mean nations. For just imagine if translators had put, for the nations shall seek him. Guess what? The nations are seeking him. The nations have been seeking him since the incarnation on a mass scale. That's why we were given the Great Commission, because this is the plan of God. So when you look at this, Isaiah passage, you think, okay, well, there's a New Testament fulfillment. Well, yes, but guess what? There's several other passages, and I'm going to try to speed and go through these as much as I can. 2 Samuel 22 50. There, I'm sorry? Okay. 2 Samuel 22 50. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, 
among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Psalm 1849. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Deuteronomy 32:43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render, and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. So why did I read all those bunch together? Because in Romans, in the church of Rome, Paul takes all of those passages and he applies them to the church of Rome. And look what he says here in Romans 15, 9 through 13. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So there it is. He's quoting 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, Psalm 18, 49, and Deuteronomy 32, 43, right there. Boom. Says, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, now he's quoting Isaiah 11. There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the nations. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you, Church of Rome, fill you with all joy, peace, and believing that you may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord took all those prophecies and he applied them right into the church of Rome. So for those of my brothers who read this, this imagery that we see in Isaiah 11. So yeah, we're waiting for this time to come. No, the time has come. Okay, God has made peace with his people through Jesus Christ. And this imagery gives us the perfect snapshot of that. When we see the lamb laying down with the lion we see peace peace that would not happen otherwise unless god disarmed the enmity that is is between us and him so when we look further this background here and i'm only going to give you a few more and then we're going to get into this Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the nations. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 1.11. Psalm 72.11, yes, all kings shall bow down before him. All nations shall serve him. Zechariah 2.11, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So it's not a mystery that God's intention of his decree for, for the nations, for the Gentile inclusion, we'll talk about that, the times of the Gentiles or the times of the nations or the fulfillment of the nations was from the incarnation on. And here's one that I really love this one right here in Isaiah 49, 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation until the ends of the earth. Now, hmm, that sounds familiar. You know why? 
Acts 13, 46 and 47, the apostle takes Isaiah's text and he applies it directly to himself. Look at what he says here. Acts 13, beginning in verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be preached to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now catch this part here. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have sent you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation until the end of the eschaton, the ends of the earth, to the uttermost parts of the earth, until the end. That's eschatology. Okay? The doctrine of last things was prophesied here, and these are the last days we see right here. That uttermost parts of the earth, to the end that you should be my salvation to the end of the earth it's literally the word eschaton and we need to understand that okay so here we are here at the cross i had to give you this background god bless the brother that made this chart it's a really nice chart i just feel like this is the missing piece right here so i had to give you that background okay now into a really another big doctrine that's misunderstood not in reform circles but I feel like we get straw man to death on the binding of Satan. And I love the fact that our post-mill brothers get this right. Okay. Our mill brothers get it right. Okay. Historic pre-mill. Not so sure. Again, I'm not an expert in historic pre-mill. Haven't read enough on it like I should. Um, definitely could use more growth in that area. So in Matthew 12, 29. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man and then he will enter, then he will plunder his house. So if you look at the context there, okay, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who entered the strong man's house, who would be Satan. Okay, and now how is he plundering his goods? Well, when we're born, we're born default not to Jesus or we too were by nature children of what? Wrath. Children of the devil. That's our default position. So that would be the goods in Satan's house. His people, his children. Okay? So when we get to Revelation, and this is a really good litmus test. When we get to chapter 20, we don't ever want to look at the book of Revelation chronologically. Pastor Paul did an excellent job explaining that. While we don't look at you know, it, one, two, three, ABC, one, two, three. But there's a recapitulation that goes on all throughout the book of Revelation. Okay, and we get to chapter 20. We see here where we really get an understanding of the imagery of the binding of Satan. We used to have a lot of discussion about that. And I'd say, well, how is Satan bound? Are we going to go to Home Depot and get a chain and a lock and put it around him and that's going to hold him? We can't take that literal. It must be understood contextually that's imagery to bring truth, literal truth of what is taking place in the unseen world, in the spirit world. So it says here in Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit 
and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him. So that, you got to get this, this is the whole purpose of the binding, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So, the binding of Satan, or the boundary that God put in place, doesn't mean that he can't actively do evil. It means that God put a bind on him that he would no longer deceive the nations. And how do we understand nations? We understand it to be the elect. So why is the gospel victoriously going out and conquering sinners from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light because God has bound Satan so that he can't deceive the elect from coming to Christ through the work of regeneration granting faith repentance and then obviously the new birth John 12 is another passage very short one John 12 31 and 32 now is the judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. So the ruler of this world was cast out. In context, talking about the crucifixion, that the binding work of Christ to keep the devil in a place so that he could not impede the progress of the gospel going out to his people that he chose before the foundation of the world. I love these other two passages right here because this is what the binding of Satan, what does that look like? Okay, what is what is what does God's work produce in this world? Okay, we must ask ourselves that so we can have a better understanding of, hey, well, if Satan is bound and the gospel's going forth, what does that look like in the life of the believer? Well, it looks like this. In as much as this is Hebrews 2:14, in as much then. As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And I should have quoted the next verse because it talks about who those who all their lifetime were in fear of death. That we were in bondage. We were unbelievers. We were afraid to die. Not that we don't fear death at all now, but we know it awaits us on the other side. So, who destroyed him who has power over the death? That would be the Lord Jesus Christ destroying Satan and the work of Satan. We see that again in 1 John 3, 7 and 8. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. I'm sorry I'm going so fast, but, you know, for time's sake, I really want to be able to get through this. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, And the incarnation and the active obedience of Christ, his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, God destroys the works of the devil in the lives of Christians. Okay? Does that mean that sin is eradicated? No. But we are not in shackles anymore. The sun sets us free. And we are free indeed. 
So the last days, my brothers and sisters, right here, the times of the Gentiles. Remember that word goyim in Hebrew is ethnos, Gentiles. The last days, the eschaton. These are the times of the Gentiles. These are the times of the nations. This is a fulfillment of the nations. And all these prophecies that I just got through reading you are coming to fruition initially here and all throughout the age. So, what are these passages they're quoting here? Acts 2.17. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I should have kept reading, but I wanted to summarize it. Because it goes on to say, and it shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When does that happen? In the last days. In the last days, in the first century. Okay, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, our brothers just got through preaching, giving us a background on this, so it should be fresh in our minds. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. In the last days, God has spoken through Jesus. Okay, so it's no mystery when people say, Oh, the last days are coming. No, man, the last days been here since Jesus spoke. Okay? And as we move forward, we see the new covenant, the dawn of the new covenant. Remember what was going on? We had temple worship going on at this time up until 70 AD. Okay, it doesn't have a, a marker there. But we had temple worship and we had the dawn of the new, the church era, the kingdom age is what I like to call it. Okay? And what came to pass was the fruition of Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant. When he said that, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Hmm. Why doesn't he mention Gentiles there? Are we waiting for Gentiles to be a part of that covenant? Are we? Ask a dispensationalist that. Say, hey, why is it um, Judah... And Israel, where, 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 why does it say Gentiles? Because who are we? We're true Israel. We're true Israel. This is the Israel God had in mind. Okay? And he says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hallelujah. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Hebrews 8, 8 through 13.
So that's a quotation directly to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now, there's all types of different views of covenant theology. 1689 federalism for Baptists, classic covenant theology or Westminsterian, which would be Presbyterian, Pado. It would also apply. Wouldn't that apply also to like the Anglicans as well? They would hold to a classic view of covenant theology, correct? No, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different? It's a little different, yeah. It's not exactly yeah. the same way Calvin did, of course. Right. But, I mean, as far as the covenant structure, yes. they wouldn't tie baptism to it, for example. Interesting. There's a lot to learn on that. I don't claim to know everything. Um, I didn't even start hearing. I knew of federalism, but wasn't really big into it until I met Paul. Um, again, these are, I like the Greek word adiaphora. They're non-essential to us having fellowship. We're going to have nuances all over the place in our eschatology. But understand that if you're reformed, if you're a Calvinist, you're going to fall under that umbrella of historic pre-mill, amill, or post-mill. Okay? A dispensationalist would not fall into this because they have a belief that there are two people of God. Now, I will dogmatically say the New Testament does not support that. It does not. Now, we love our brothers. I, I, most of my friends that are Christian outside of this church are dispensational. And we have a lot of debates. And some of them are healthy, some not so healthy. But I never look at them and say, hey, that guy's dispensational. I'm not going to invite him over my house. Okay? Or that guy's dispensational. He can't come over and kick it with me, man. Or, no, there are brothers. There are brothers, just like Arminians. Most of them are just confused. Some more willfully than others, right? So, as we move forward here, we're going to get to, I want to talk to about the part of what brings us into the kingdom of God. God causes his elect to have life by the spirit. By the spirit. And I know you guys have heard this a lot, but my brother just said it earlier, Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption. Okay, The Father elects, the Son atones, the Spirit gives life. But I really, in my study of this, really came across this passage where I want us to get an understanding, and there's a lot of disagreement over this passage in Revelation here. But I want to give us, I want us, I want this to color before I get to the close here. That in John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, and I'd like for you to turn here with me. This is a really, really deep, John 5, 24 through 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, has everlasting life. John 5, 24 and 25. Okay, start again. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 
This is regeneration with a vengeance. This is regeneration. And we need to understand that the same power that Christ got up from the dead, that the Father raised him from the dead, that he raised himself from the dead from, is the same power that he calls dead men to life, that he makes dead men live. Ephesians 1, 18 through 21 says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceedingly greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. Okay? God regenerates us with the same resurrection power that Jesus got up from the dead with. Okay, now why am I saying all of that? Because when you get to Revelation 20, which Pastor Paul, think you're there yet or no? You're about to get there couple of weeks so keep this in mind I, I believe you can take this to the bank his position will be the same as mine blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and he shall reign and they shall reign with him a thousand years this is a reference to the first resurrection would be regeneration so we die but we die a physical death once. That's why Jesus said, he who believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. Okay. So the second resurrection would be the day of the Lord, but not yet. Or the post-mill, my post-mill brothers would call it the final. The last day, John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. That word him in Greek is aton. It's the same him that he draws is the same him that he raises at the last day. Okay. So our mission. So what does this look like? What does this look like? Well, this is a present evil age, but it's also a kingdom age. It's also a glorious age. It's an age that we the church are at war. We are the church militant on the earth. The church triumphant in heaven. We are waging war for Christ. Okay? Do not forget that, brothers and sisters. You strap on your boots. Guess what? Don't forget your shield, your armor, your sword, your helmet. Because we are at war. And our mission is to make disciples preaching Christ crucified, to be salt and light, to love and obey our God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And he says in another place that they won't be burdensome to you. There are times we're going to sin, right? We need to be reminded of that, okay? It's not just those times are infrequent. We sin every day, right? We need to be reminded of that every day. 
In Romans 3, at the end of Romans, I think our brother's getting ready to come up on this in a week or two. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We establish the law, okay? That's in obedience. That's living out our faith, living out our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him because he first loved us. And we are to bear one another's burdens in this time and so fulfill the law of Christ. And understand that there is a first, second, third use of the law in the confessions. Okay? Somebody's unhappy. Hey, you want to borrow this, bro? So the first, second, and third use of the law in the confessions, the first use is to show us our sin. Galatians 3, 24 and 25, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law, the first use of the law in the London Baptist Confession is to show us our sin. It's to show us our need for a savior. Okay? Second use of the law would be to restrain evil. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars and for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Brothers and sisters, we must battle against sin. It must start here. We must go to war with the sin that is in our hearts, our flesh, our eyes, our minds, our tongue. And it must work its way out from there. Because guess what? All these sins, I like what Vody Bakum says. He says, this is a gospel issue. We're not going to let somebody come and just say, yeah, I'm gay and I'm a Christian. That's a gospel issue. Oh, that's a gospel issue. You don't, thank God, well, I guess some Mormons will qualify. I'm an adulterer and I'm a Christian, right? Under polygamy, okay? Gospel, any sin issue is a gospel issue. Why? Because if you've truly repented and the repentance that leads to life, and flying to Christ and having him be your hope and your anchor, then the Christian repentance, the regenerate repentance, the ongoing life of turning away from sin is a result of that initial repentance in coming to Christ. And they're inseparable, but one leads to the other. And so we must understand that we cannot compromise on those issues because then we, the gospel's convoluted. On one way, there's antinomianism, and on the other way, there's this legalism, all right? We want to be gospel-centered, so therefore we want to be Christ-centered. So all of this, in this kingdom age, we are to wage war. I just gave you what that looks like. Now, in closing, I want you to understand, at the end, at the close of the Chilia, the thousand years, there is what's called, and most theologians agree on this, the final rebellion. And that's found in Revelation 27 and 8. It says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations 
which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to do battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So keep in mind here, let's not get some Hollywood imagery in our minds, but the final rebellion is when God releases Satan so that the nations will be deceived. That very thing that he bound Satan so that the nations would not be deceived from the gospel, he's going to release him so that the nations will be deceived from the gospel. And we don't know how long that is, but we know it's going to be ugly. It's going to be ugly. And I like that the Bible tells us that he only has but a short time. And maybe that does apply to here. I'm not saying that it does dogmatically, but in the final rebellion, okay, again, there's going to be a distinction between some people who hold to what I'm calling Chileaism, I-mill, post-mill, historic pre-mill. See, the new heavens and the new earth, we believe, I believe, and several other brothers, that this is going to consummate after the final rebellion. And then in the Peter passage when it says, therefore we look to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's one position. Okay, the other saints who uh, hold to this position believe that um, the new heavens and the new earth start in the new creation. Okay, in the new creation would be we're new creatures in Christ. Therefore, the creation is new and it's kind of like an allegory. Um, I don't hold that position, but I know several credible scholars do. I do disagree with them. But that is Reformed eschatology in a nutshell. It would take probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 lectures to really go through all those things in great detail. But that's just a snapshot of what it looks like. So if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer or clarify. And if the Rotten Tomatoes are coming, I got a really big iPad, so <laughs> I can duck pretty fast. So. Not all at once. Yes. So at the end in Revelation, it says that uh, God will uh, bind Satan so he doesn't deceive the nations. And you said, yeah, so the nations won't be deceived. Is that the same nations that when Satan's released, says now he will deceive the nations, or is it a different nations? So I, I refer to the nations as when they were when Satan was <coughs> was bound as the elect. The Bible doesn't really tell us if when he's released, if it's going to be, I would assume that would be the non-elect, but they're already deceived. So it's kind of tricky. But at the end of the day, when Satan is released from prison, that boundary that God put in place to restrain him or to bind him was for the very reason for the gospel to go out. So I think it's just giving us imagery that that those who are deceived will remain deceived. And it's, we almost get that picture in, in 2 Timothy when it's talking about false teachers, perilous times and perilous men's, that evil men will grow worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. So I kind of look at that as not unsaved, reprobate people are going to be deceived. They're already deceived, but that that the purpose of God in building his church is about to come to completion. So in my mind, that would mean less people get saved, but I'm sure maybe somebody else has a different take on that.
Yeah. Anybody else? <laughs> Noel. No, the elect is referenced as peoples, kindreds, tribes. Um, nations is just simply non-Jew. A Gentile, those outside the borders of Israel, like everyone that I know of in this room is, would qualify as a nation. Everyone who's put their faith in Christ. So it's used interchangeably as the elect. Several times, even the Olivet Discourse. So... Your question, I know you're not trying to come after me, but it sounds a little bit loaded a little bit. So what can you kind of like rephrase it or explain what you mean by that? I'm, I'm just curious how this, because of the elect argument, I've heard the elect being referred to as the nations, I think, of the nations, right. referred to as picking people out from the nations. Yes. Um, but usually that's in the context of Yes. Right. Yes. That's why it just it seems slightly off to me to read this and say the nation and refer it back to the elect when this context isn't necessarily about going to nations and pulling people out of them. Well, I think the tough part of what you're saying too is where a lot of confusion in the form circles is that we're talking about individual and individuals that make up people groups. And a lot of times it gets confused with geography, as in sovereign nations. And I think that's where a lot of the post-mill, ah-mill debate comes in. And a lot of times in when I talk to my brothers, it's talking past each other. And the more we talk to each other and say, is this what you mean? Oh, you mean this? Oh, you mean individual people groups out of this region? Yes. Okay, so... Contextually, it is used in in different ways. So it really comes down to what the passage is saying. So, but as far as one nation, is that what you mean? Like geographical, like sovereign nation versus individual people groups out of that sovereign nation? Yeah. I, okay. I guess I just mean like the, the nations. Yeah, the different people groups. Right. Yeah, and see, that this is where the confusion comes in. When we don't define our terms when we're talking to each other, every geography, every sovereign nation has people groups that are, that are distinct from another sovereign nation. And when the Bible was written, it was Jew, Gentile, then Jew, Greek, but it's still talking about people groups that are made up of individuals within that sovereign geography. Does that make sense? So when you read it, this is why we need to pray when we read our Bibles. We should just sit down and read it like some academic exercise because the, the word of God is living and active. And we need enlightenment. We need the eyes of our, we need our eyes to be enlightened and our understanding to be enlightened when we sit there. And it takes humility because we can come to the Bible with the presupposition to where we're trying to fit God's word into our systematic theology. But if my systematic theology and my biblical theology is wrong, I want God to show that to me. 
And if it means it's going to make me have a little bit of a gap between some of my brothers, then so be it. You know, we can't have this mentality that we want to have this unity of tribalism when truth is way over here and we're way over here. We should ask God to give us an understanding because these are difficult texts. They're not easy. They're not easy. And I'm going to sit here and tell you that this didn't come overnight. By God's grace, I've spent probably over 200 hours studying this topic on my own. And it's real, and I still don't have it figured out. So, yes. I, I don't know. I couldn't make the money watering money, but sure. I figured out. Go ahead. I was just kind of thinking back on the point a little bit. Yeah. Yes. So when it says nations, I don't think it's talking about Christians. I think it's actually talking about nations, right? So to have that question or say, well, is it referring to that as a common Right. Well, I said that earlier. Yeah, the post mills do. Yes, it's sovereign nations, but still, you agree that they have to be regenerated. That's not like that. God's just. Yeah. Right. No, it's just God is going to regenerate people, whether it's people groups like He did in Acts when three thousand souls were getting saved, or just one sinner at a time. If, uh, like, for instance, at our pantry, we had set what seventy-one people. There the other day on Saturday was it Jeff seventy one people seventy five okay God could regenerate fifty people in one day right I'm not saying that he couldn't so I think a lot of the distinction between the hermeneutic aspect between Amel and Postmills one will focus in on one one will focus in on the other but it really depends on the text right I think we would all agree on that is yeah. that what you're saying brother well, no, yeah, I mean I mean yes and no I mean, okay. Christendom 2.0. So, so it's not it's not just definitive and final as we said, like Yeah, and I don't think we would either. I think it really would depend on the text that we're talking about. Because remember, we're talking about things that are beyond our control. We preach the gospel, but our post-mill brothers don't believe that we regenerate anyone. God does that as he pleases. So we're really theoretically talking about the work of God. This is why I think the reformers had so much wisdom in saying you've got to allow for disagreement on this. Within the scope of reformed eschatology. Brother Brian. Uh, I was actually going to say that too. But I was real grateful that throughout the teaching, just the mindfulness of the different uh, points of view on that, where a lot of times people go to uh, get real into it, and they, they hang everything on one aspect, right. and not allowing differences of opinion on it. Like I'm talking different, um, like real sound guys, whether pastors or uh, professors or whatever. And for the most part, 
they tend to affirm that if you, if you really just kind of sit with them a while and ask them questions, I found for the most part they'll say, you know what, I'm about 90% sure that this is this is correct. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not against having a 90% sure opinion, but just the willingness to admit, like, we don't have this all figured out. I heard one guy say um, that he thinks, and I really thought it was helpful, um, he thinks that it's going to be like the first coming of Christ, that there's enough there in the text that God has put up there for us to honestly arrive at what will be. But just as in the first coming of Christ, no one was able to figure it out truly, like totally, mm -hmm. that it will be the same in the second coming of Christ. That God has given us enough, but that just as we miss all of the minute aspects of mm -hmm. this, that we were missing things in the second. I couldn't say amen more because, and Stephen and I were talking about this the other day, that word eschatos, eschaton, it just means uttermost parts of the earth. And so we have spilled an enormous amount of ink over what we think that looks like and what we think that is. And I'm not saying I think that we're wrong. I mean, I'm pretty dogmatic on my eschatology, but not to the point to where I'm going to sever relationships with my close brothers who hold to different positions. I have one buddy who is uh, historic pre-mill. He never brings it up. I want to talk to him about it. He's like, yeah. He changes the subject because he doesn't want to box because he's in the minority in his church, right? Whereas I got my other brothers who are very vehemently post-mill. And I'm like, that's okay. That's fine. It brings, it brings a good piece of iron to sharpen against and help us grow. But we must understand that that's the purpose of it. I'd rather be sharpening and talking about our something that's going to foster growth. Or else I could talk about the Niners and MMA and boxing for 20 hours. Okay, but I'd much rather be in a good Bible conversation that's going to urge me on to the things of the Lord and to challenge me to dig deeper. And so it is a healthy discussion. Yes. So you're, you're advocating for two-age eschatology and the two-ages... As you see it is the age we're currently in, and the second age being the age after the, the new heavens and the new earth. The age eternal. So the age to come, the, this is the present age. And then the so age those, to come would be the age the Those age two eternal. ages are, that's two ages in terms strictly of eschatology. Because you probably, when we're in Mark, Mark 13, for instance, the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD brings to an end... A, an age or a time period when worship was largely impacted by that temple and the, the cultists that went on there. So it's yes. the end of an age, but it's not one of these two ages that we're talking about. These two ages are larger scale. Yeah, so that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. The word age is used in smaller scale, yeah. not eschatologically. Yes, yes, that's a good point. So duo, aeon, eschatos. So when you think of that, there are going to be references to the Jewish age, Aeon, and the age to come, meaning the kingdom age. However, a post-mill hermeneutic like a Kenneth Gentry would almost exclusively hold... Now, it's tricky because I'm partial preterist pretty much a lot like Gentry. However, where I break with him is the age eternal. He, My brother really doesn't apply that to there. That's why I specifically read those passages because I think it's very tough when it talks about the age to come eternal and you start saying this is eternity, this is not eternity. 
And so Stephen and I were discussing that. And he's like, no, I would agree with that. And I'd say, okay, so then you would disagree with Gentry on that. And he said, yes, I would. And that's when we start getting into the Romans 11. Eschatology is not monolithic. There's going to be distinctions within Amil. There's going to be distinctions within Postmill. There's going to be a lot of tricky hermeneutics that come into play that are going to challenge your thinking. Like, I've already gone back and forth. I've been Amil for about 10 years, and I've already gone back and forth a couple of times on a couple of passages. And then the idealist position comes in, and I'm like, okay. I didn't realize I was being taught that when I was going to Riddlebarger a lot for it. So it's just so, so much of a spectrum. It depends on where you are, you know. And may the Lord grow us in that spectrum to where we refine. But I, I feel like we're not going to ever be experts on such a large topic, man. And that's okay. That's okay. It goes back to Pastor Paul's sermon about the Lord God. I mean, we have such a small peon understanding of what God has given us. And we, we need to be thankful with that. We need to be thankful with that. Paul, I could see your wheels turning. Yeah, I had, so I guess I made a question about point of clarification from something you said at the beginning yes. of the sermon. Um, I want to say, like, first I like the image because the sign that you bought, because it shows really well how the age to come almost is like bleeding in to this current age and existing in this already not yet tension. Yes. So you have what Christ has accomplished and then the application of that to the elect in time now, and but it is the fullness of it is realized in this new heaven, new earth. Yeah, I didn't talk about that tension enough nearly, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, well, so in the beginning you mentioned that we don't have eternal life until the not yet. I meant that I meant that in the te- in the context of beloved, we don't know what we shall be, but we see and we shall be like him. We don't have glorified bodies, is what I mean. Yeah. But yes, we have eternal life right now. We okay. do have it. Yeah. No, I'm not saying that we, I'm talking about, I was talking, that's why I pointed down here. I'm talking about the consummation of transitioning into the new heavens and new earth, where the earth is redeemed, you know, with the fervent heat. Some people say, oh, this is just big energy. No, well, I think we would take that more in a literal sense that we are going to have a new heavens and a new earth, new glorified bodies into the kingdom. So eternal life in the consummated kingdom context okay but we do have eternal life he who believes has eternal life right i said that earlier i could have elaborated on that so thanks for that clarification what's that yeah john 3 36 yes absolutely yeah john 6 47 too there is a distinction to be made like we have eternal life now but obviously we're still driving against the flesh uh, we live we live in that already not yet so yes. we have it already true yes but it's not yet it's not yet consummated. Yeah, right. It's not an either or. It's both, but in a different context, right? Yeah. I could, thank you for clarifying. Because I know that you yeah. know, like you think of some people, like uh, Douglas Wilson a little bit, John Piper, talking about like final justification, and where you say like you can't really know that you have justification until you have that. Experience and the age, and so I didn't want. I was make sure we weren't going there. I'm going to say too. A lot of the butchers, I knew it. He's a Westminster guy. He's quoted the Catechism, which is the same as ours. I don't think he has a difference in justification. 
I think that people just kind of misinterpret us. Like, I can't really speak so much for Piper on that, but Doug Wilson has the same investigation. Piper was very lousy. Piper is a 1689 guy, man. Is he really? But yeah, yeah, he still talks about following the patient, which is not his confession or the catechism. So. Yeah, well, I think that's, it is tough to speak clear on every single aspect. And I think that's one of the things I know. I think we all need to have grace with teachers, right? It's like the more I listen to our elders here and the more I listen to other people online, I like. I think I heard Phil Johnson make a mistake for the first time ever the other day. And I was like, Whoa, Phil Johnson made a mistake. And I was like, of course, you idiot. He's a man, right? But even when Paul Washer says words wrong, these guys that we put up on a pedestal, we're men. We need grace. You know, Paul was like, man, I'm on five hours sleep. I'm like, so am I. And I'm like, man, that brother can preach like that on five hours of sleep. Okay, well, in one sense, I'm sitting up here thinking there's no way. I'm going to be fumbling over my words all afternoon. But God gives us grace. But we need that grace from from you as well when we get up here, you know, because we're men. And this is such a monumental topic and task to try to bring that we also need grace on those nuances. So when we start talking about how, yeah, we believe the same thing, I think we do. I think that there are differences when we start talking about the scope of who God's going to save versus a post-millennialist and the scope of who God's going to save versus anomalous. Yeah, there's there is a difference. We start talking about the timing of the thousand year reign of Christ or a historic pre-mill. There's going to be a difference between an odd mill and a post mill that's going to be synonymous. It's going to be for a long period of time. Now some other post mills will emphasize the golden age and say that this time is going to be golden within the thousand years, but it's still a thousand years. It's still first and second advent of Christ. It's still the last days are between the first and second coming of Christ. So I think we do need to try to focus in. I think of that passage in Ephesians, do everything to keep the union of the spirit of the bond of peace. We need to try to have and seek for unity because we have an adversary, the devil, who is walking about like a roaring lion. Even though he's bound in that imagery, he still can do evil. And one thing he would love to do is wreak and wreak havoc on Christians. So if somebody's dispensational, yeah, debate, do it charitably, okay? But at the same time, understand we're brothers. When we come to church, see about people. Don't make sure you just always, hey, let me let me see how many lumps I can get on my brother's head today. But you ask him first, hey, how you doing today, man? How's everything going? How's your walk with the Lord? You know, we're real people. And I think in our flesh, especially as men, I like to put lumps on people sometimes, right? And I think we got to be careful, too, because sometimes we catch a brother having a bad day, right? And remember, we got the same enemy and the same father. Keep that in mind, and I need to keep that in mind. Yes? Would a 2A, in the beginning you were saying that that a 2A eschatology and that it's that there's multiple like post millennialism or on the or pre millennialism that all use it. So I was wondering, um, would with post and the current age there there being a gold a quote golden age? I know that modern like Vietnam and post don't 
sperm is sort of the golden age. Yeah. But would you, could they still say that the church, that the church is always militant in this current age? Or does the church, does the church cease to be militant if the vast majority of the populace becomes obedient to Christ, even if they're not saved? I'm going to defer that to Ivan. Because <laughs> he's post me. <laughs> no. He's doing it, bro. Just looking at the sign. So the sign has the current age. And it says in the current age that this church militant here on earth. And so the church militant, as we typically understand that, is that it's combating the forces of evil. It's the gospel is expanding. The gates of hell are not prevailing against so this church militant. So if we hold to a post-millennial view, and at some point in the future, in this current age, right, but still before the eternal age, um, it becomes, society becomes such that, you know, the majority of the world is Christianized, or at least, you know, if not truly believing, but maybe at least in submission to Christ, lawfully, then would it, would it still be right to affirm the, the church built at that point still? That's a or good question. Not, affirm church 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 church. Church. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so like, I mean, you're with church militant, right? And just the, the, the construct or the concept. Uh, like, is the church still the church? Or? Is the church still the church yeah. militant in this golden age when the subduing of the kingdoms has taken place? I mean, the church is, the, is always going to be the church. Just like... Church militant. So I guess my brother's saying, what's the need for the church militant if the nations are subdued in this golden age? I think you described it. Question that every Christian has to ask is God decrees his own defeat of time. And I would say the answer is no, right? Um, we talk about 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite verses, and we back up to 14. One of the key components for me in even looking at that particular verse, which was Psalm 110, the most important verse in the New Testament, that's been kind of one of those texts that I've heavily leaned on is the order of matters, right? What's the last enemy? Death, Death. right? So until preposition matters, last death. So what's the until? Until all of his enemies become a footstool for his feet. How is that accomplished? Through the gospel, through the Great Commission, through the church. We go back to Genesis. What is the what is the initial call? To take dominion, to subdue the earth. The, the, the mission doesn't change. So what happens? There's a fall. Satan has this reign. God calls on Abraham, as you pointed up. Abraham going to make a great nation out of you. It's going to be like the sand of the sea, the numbers of the stars won't even be comprehended. Well, that didn't happen in Abraham's time, obviously, right? Abraham had a limited number of children. However, a nation was made, Israel. They were done to do what? Conquest, take the land. A subduing of land, subduing of the earth, right? And all that, as you mentioned in Galatians 3 8, was a, was a foreshadowing of Christ who was to come, yeah, right? Of course. The microcosm of the gospel. So we get to the gospel, Matthew 28, what's the Great Commission tell us to do? Go out, subdue the earth, take land. Now the question that has to be answered is, is this an impotent command? Is God giving this command not knowing what's going to happen? Is Christ the head of this church leading this army? And are we somehow baffled if we're going to um, take on this conquest? And I think Psalm 110, 1 Corinthians 15 answers that. We will be victorious. We will be successful in the cycling nations. And when that happens, then what happens? Christ returns. Christ returns. You know, so the church is militant. The church is going for 
accomplished in Christ's time now. And I said it's going to happen on the year 3000 at 5.15 p.m. I can't, but I think the difference is, and I actually like this structure, one thing Vox focuses on is the contrast between the present age and the age to come. Mm -hmm. I would say if you slide post-millennialism in there, it's the overwhelming optimism of what the church is going to do here on Right, so you would say yes then, that once the church accomplishes its mission, that golden age, the church would cease being militant because Christ is getting ready to come. Right, because that's that, that, that makes sense then to a post mill view. But just with a golden age. It's overwhelmingly optimistic, though? Yeah, I'm very optimistic as an Amil. And I will say, I did. Well, it depends on how we're defining optimism, right? I would say well, I think we define. I don't. Yeah, I don't deny that we we define victory slightly different because I don't think that it has to be numbers for God to be victorious. And I, I'm looking. I butchered my notes. I had a whole section in here about God reigning that I passed. I don't know how I passed that. But, yeah, I, I don't. I do not. Right. I think I think there is a difference, though, because I think when we look at the road being narrow and few find it, I think we do look at that not to color all of our eschatology, but to understand that that passage in Galatians, when it talks about the two covenants that uh, the one at Mount Sinai and the one Hagar and the children in bondage for the desolate have many more children than she who has a husband. I think that does present a problem for post-mill, the golden age view, just like the road being narrow and few finding it, that the Bible does seem to communicate that there's going to be an overwhelming number of unbelievers compared to believers. However, I still hold that God's elect are going to be, that the sons of Abraham are going to be as the sand of the seashore, that there's going to be myriads and myriads of saints out there. So with that hope that God is going to save his people from their sins, I don't preach an impotent gospel just like he doesn't preach an impotent gospel just like Nick doesn't. We have a hopeful expectation that God has people. Just like he said in, in the gospel, speak not, be not silent for I have people in this city. We believe that when we preach the gospel. We don't just preach the gospel and say, oh, well, Maybe somebody will get saved 20 years from now. No, when we preach the gospel, we believe God is working. And so I think there's a slight distinction in the hermeneutic, but overall, there's there's going to be a glorious amount of saints in eternity. And, and I, I, was, so, I was going to say this earlier, but I'll say it because I can keep us here all night going back and forth. But I did want to give a few others. I mean, that was like drinking out of a fire hose, so to speak. I mean, just being my own very consistent in uh, a lot of your eschatology positions. I do appreciate the fact that you made a, a very conscious effort to give a fair shape to post-colonialism because, one, it's rarely ever mentioned when it is. It's usually totally butchered or just yeah. used as a punchline. So no. I appreciate it because eschatology is important because it completely, uh, sometimes you get dismissed, but it's important because it colors everything we read about the Bible and it definitely colors how we live and what we're eating. Wait a minute, brother. I don't look at uh, I know post mills are my brothers, just like Paul does, just like Nick does. And there's going to be a little bit of differences, but I still love James White. I love all these guys. I mean, at the end of the day, some of the guys kind of press my buttons and trigger me. But most of them that I listen to, like a Gentry and all these other guys, 
Some of these guys, even even Sproul went back and forth with Tulsa Mill and Amil, right? So at the end of the day, there's been a lot of great saints who have held to these positions. Um, and even like you think Kyperianism, look how much props he was Amil. And look how much props all the Post Mill guys give to him, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's Chileaism at the end, right? And we're brothers, and there's going to be differences. And like I said, if we're really honest with ourselves and not being hypocritical and super tribal, there's going to be distinctions within distinctions. Boy, turn that light back on. <laughs> nah. Come on, man. There's going to be distinctions within distinctions. So we do need to be charitable to each other, not just on the on the broader differences, but even on the smaller ones. So I can't remember. Is, uh, is all millennialism technically considered part of Chileism, or is that only reserved for premillennialism, where it, where it affirms a thousand years? From what I understand, there's a, a lot of uh, guys over in Europe I like to listen to on Sermon Audio. I can't remember the name of this professor over there that I listened to, but he said that, um, I'll send him to you, very proper guy, I forget his name, but he said that Chileism was the early church, like when Augustine was basically, Augustine, Augustine, okay, that's the that's the Latino way of saying it, I guess, right? So, so there was a very, a broad understanding that Chileism, and I know we claim St. Augustine for ourselves. Our post-mill brothers say that he was one of theirs, just like the Romanists do with a lot of the early church fathers, right? But at the end of the day, we didn't have these terms until later, on-mill, post-mill. And that's, I think, that's the point he's trying to make. Even a lot of the uh, Pactum guys have talked about that, right? Yeah, because what we see within the early church is that they're really, there's only two positions, that you're either pre-mill or you're post-mill. Technically, all millennialism is post-mill, what we say is that yeah. that the millennium we're currently living in, Christ returns after, after the millennium. So we're currently in the millennium, so it's a post-millennial return. Yeah. Part of my confusion with modern post-millennialism is that since it rejects a golden age, then to me it's just all millennialism because there's not a thousand years. There's not like that, that period of time, whether it's a literal thousand years or close to a thousand years, yeah. the older, like Puritanic, right. where that was, it was post-millennialism because it was Christ returns after this period of time yes. of peace on the earth. Yeah. Whereas more modern post talks differently. So yeah. it's, it's like they were very close. They were almost on and post and modern Very close. Amen, brother. I, I couldn't agree more. And when I listen to guys exegete Psalm 110, I'm like, yeah and amen. Now there's some things in there that I think, like when I listen to Durbin in Psalm 110, I'd be like, well, he left out a couple of parts because the ones who are the enemies of God are turned into the worshipers of God. And you can't just look at it all enemies that are placed under his feet being these enemies that he's going to break their neck, break their teeth. However, you got to look at some of those enemies. You know, what does it say in the Gospels? Uh, we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. We used to be enemies, right? When we were enemies, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us, right? So some of these enemies that are of God are elect that become allies. And some enemies have their knees broken. You know, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So it's tough, man. I mean, we're not going to stand up and preach messages and cover every point. But there are differences and we just got to live with those differences, you know. All right.
could be wrong, I don't remember exactly, but I think that all the language would not be classified as a Chileism or Achilleism view. Because I think that's reserved for premillennial, the people who see it there being like a an actual thousand year period. Okay. Chileus meaning thousand. Yes, Chilea, yeah, mean thousand. Well you can show me something on that. I may have got no, it's fine. But if you find something, send it to me. I may have gotten that wrong. Wouldn't be the first time. Won't be the last. <laughs> so, all right. No, it's fine. From my understanding, it's it's an all-encompassing um, Chileism. Thousand years. Yes, the Millennium Views. Yes, within the scope of Reformed eschatology. You know, not to knock our dispy brothers, but. When you hold that there's two people of God, you're extra biblical, in my opinion. So, all right. You want me to throw some union dues on? Bye. I figured. <laughs> all right. Thanks, brothers and sisters.